what would the name of this episode be? I was trying to come up with one, and like in my head, I was like, what could it possibly be? And then I was just like, I don't know how you can come up with one for this because it's a lot. I was thinking about the same thing. And right now, the placeholder is uh, how to run a brothel. Oh, God. And that will probably not be, yeah, <laughs> not be the, the final title. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And hopefully today's guest, Nortagori, is breathing a sigh of relief somewhere because How to Run a Brothel was not the final episode title. And that makes sense because Nor is not a brothel-owning madam. She's a brothel-visiting journalist. Nor recently hosted and reported a documentary series with Newsy called Sold in America about sex trafficking. Or at least that's what she thought it was going to be about. I quickly realized, oh my gosh, I actually cannot cover this without covering the entire sex trade and actually talking about what happens across the spectrum. In fact, that sex trade spectrum is so vast and often so misunderstood, Nora's extended her reporting into Sold in America, the podcast, out this week. And in it, she investigates how the country's underground sex economy operates, from sex work by choice to forced prostitution or trafficking. And efforts to control it here in the U.S., from crackdowns on clients who pay for sex in Seattle to regulating legal brothels in Nevada. We knew we wanted to talk to Noor about all of this for a couple of reasons. One is that it totally piques our unladylike interest. I mean, this is the so-called world's oldest and unladylikest profession we're talking about here. And there are a lot of conflicting opinions and approaches about how it should or could work in society, as Noor's work shows. And the reason we wanted to talk to Noor specifically is that her reporting is part of a whole personal journey of her own and how she thinks about this stuff. And Noor says that being a Muslim American woman has helped her gain the trust of folks in the sex trade who are typically wary of journalists, kind of for good reason. We definitely wanted to know more about that, too. So today, Nora's going to be our civilian guide in learning about how the United States regulates the sex trade, why it's so complicated to begin with, and give us some ideas about how society could do better by sex workers. Could you describe when you pull up like the whole the whole vibe. The whole vibe. <laughs> just just paint, paint us a picture. It's definitely a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> During her reporting, Noor visited the Moonlight Bunny Ranch, one of 20 legal brothels in Nevada. Now, prostitution isn't legal statewide. It's just in certain counties. And it's a business that first sprang up in the 1870s with the silver and gold rush. Over time, it kind of became a selling point for the state. And we wanted to start at the ranch because Nora's look at one of the only places in the United States where sex work is legal tells us so much about the sex industry and how we treat the people who work in it and why. So, okay, so the Bunny Ranch, when you pull up, there's like some pretty 
random signs like the speed limit is 69 or like bunnies <laughs> at play or whatever. And you pull up and there's imagine just like a desert and then a building just smacked randomly in the middle of the desert. And it's definitely a way on its own. The remoteness of the Moonlight Bunny Ranch is intentional. Under Nevada law, prostitution is legal in counties only with fewer than 700,000 people. And most brothels don't allow employees to freely come and go between shifts. You either have to ask permission to leave, or, as happens more often, you're just not allowed to leave the brothel premises at all until you fulfill your contract term. Just like local zoning ordinances that cluster strip clubs and sex toy stores together, the Nevada law and brothel lockdowns essentially approach sex workers as like a social contagion. They're only acceptable in rural locations where most folks don't have to see them and thus be lured in by the siren song of the vagina. Caroline, you joke, but vagina is kind of the decor motif when you first walk into the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. So it's kind of like set up almost like a mm, hotel-ish kind of thing where it's just like one level. And when you walk in, you walk into the parlor and you're just like kind of bombarded by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of like nude photos. And oh, wow. It's like super like, whoa, I definitely know where I am. <laughs> and so when you walk in and you open the door... They ring a bell because that means a client has come in. Granted, we were not clients. But um, all of the girls do basically like a lineup in the parlor. And how many girls uh, are we talking about? Um, When we were there, I would say maybe like, I would say less than 20 the day we were there. But there are several brothels. And I know that he's had like thousands of girls before, wow. like just come through. So you have this lineup, right? And people are, and it's like, it's diverse in style, I would say. Like, but there was only one woman of color. And Dennis Hoff is very clear about his type. Um, he definitely loves, quote, beautiful blondes. So you'll see that, like, even some of the girls who weren't naturally blonde had dyed their hair blonde. No, Dennis Hoff is not some rich regular at the Bunny Ranch. He's the owner of not just one, but seven legal brothels across the state. And don't worry, we'll get back to that charmer later. For now, let's go back to the parlor lineup. There are different girls, and they all line up dressed however they want, or barely dressed at all. And the client takes his pick. And then the girls go into, um, I think they take him to the room first, and then they go to the, quote, hooker booker room and book um, their little session and they run down like the contract and what they're going to do and agree. And the girl like tells the price, tells the guy the price. And um, and then they either move forward or they don't. Actually, when we were there, the guy had picked someone and then was like, oh, like I'm more expensive than that. The whole negotiating thing isn't weird or unusual. The women who work at the Bunny Ranch, or working girls as they prefer to be called, are technically independent contractors in the same way as like a, a hairstylist who rents a chair at a salon. Only we can presume that she can actually leave the salon after she's done with her shifts. And all of that means that there's no company health insurance, no paid vacation, and no sexual harassment policies. But workers are free to charge their own rates as long as they give 50 percent to the house. 
And workers also have to pay rent, food, transportation, and other costs associated with brothel operations, like also registering with law enforcement and getting weekly STD tests. So why would working girls sign up for this? I mean, it's a lot, but I think the answer is safety. You know, it's like not an ideal perfect situation, but it's safer than a lot of the alternatives. They have rooms with panic buttons, security is nearby, and working girls can vet and negotiate with clients. In her documentary, Noor talks with one working girl, Tiara, who's got the whole bunny ranch system down pat. Can you walk me through what a negotiation process is like for you here? So when the customer first comes into my room, um, the first thing I do is just say, make yourself at home, sit on my bed. Um, and then I start asking questions like, where are you from? You know, just trying to make them feel comfortable instead of being like, how, what's your budget? How much money you got? This is my price. And then I say, some people come in here and they have a certain thing in their mind already planned that they want to do with a girl. Are you that person? Do you have a fetish or a fantasy you want me to fulfill? Or are you basic? Oral and intercourse. And then they'll either say they have a fetish and then I will choose my price how, depending on how dramatic that fetish is, or if they're normal, I will go with my regular price. Do you feel safe every single time? I do. I really do. I sit down with the person and, you know, talk with them for a little bit. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be safe, but, um, you know, I can, I'm pretty good at feeling out vibes and um, picking up vibes. When you talk to some of the women, like they, it is strictly business. And to them, like they are just open to doing whatever. And by the way, if they get picked by somebody and they're not comfortable, they're like, I'm not about to do anything with this dude, then they can say no. Um, but like it's when you talk anybody you talk to in that place, it's money first. And some people will go in and 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 be like, I'm just gonna be here for the summer or for the year and end up there for 10 years. Um I mean that that honestly though sounds like you could be describing someone's you know, job right out of college yep. at, you know, insert random business. And they're like, and then I ended up staying 10 years. Do I love it? No, but it pays the bills. Like, right. Exactly. So that's and that's like that for me was a huge reflective point when understanding the sex trade as a trade and a business. Thinking about sex work as work, as a business is really important and not doing that is a mistake folks from religious crusaders to liberal feminists to supposedly neutral reporters have been making since the beginning of sex work itself. In fact, that's why we're calling it sex work instead of prostitution, which law enforcement uses in this episode. So in 1980, a sex worker named Carol Lee, a.k.a. Scarlet Harlot, coined sex work while attending a feminist conference on violence in porn and media. At a workshop on prostitution, Scarlet Harlot saw red when the phrase sex use industry was used to describe her livelihood. Yeah, I mean, that's an admittedly strange term. Yeah. Sex use industry. But that also reflects a lot of the feminist contention around this kind of work because there is this idea that it's inherently Usy and objectifying. Yeah, but so Scarlet Harlot was like, guys, this is my job. I'm not just like a sex use object. I'm not a blow up doll. And so the term sex work was born. Or to quote Scarlet Harlot herself, sex work acknowledges the work we do rather than defines us by our status. 
And acknowledging sex work as a livelihood and the people doing it as workers like the rest of us is something that legalizing sex work, like the Bunny Ranch does, gets right. But in the rest of the country, not so much. And not by a long shot. Everywhere in the U.S. but Nevada regulates sex work by criminalizing it, meaning piling on laws against selling and or buying sex, which we know makes the sex trade more dangerous by driving it farther underground. Right, because as experts point out, that sex work criminalization fights sex instead of crime. It's this whole supply and demand issue. And ultimately, criminalization just inherently means not valuing or listening to the sex workers themselves. So Noor wanted to learn more about legalization and whether it truly is better. So she talked to Dennis Hoff, the brothel owner who prefers blondes and sells himself as a savvy businessman, you know, a cut above the average pimp. So in the simplest term, I'm a pimp. But, but I have a license. I have a business license to do this. So you're it's, a legal it's, pimp. I'm a, I'm a legal pimp, absolutely. In the book, in The Art of the Pimp, I say it in jest because when you read the book, you find out the last thing I am is a pimp. I'm a partner with these girls. Nor hoped talking to Dennis would shed some light on whether his brothels were truly less exploitative than illegal sex work. But talking to Dennis didn't exactly clarify things for Nor. In fact, they got murkier. I could tell I was the first Muslim woman he had probably ever spoken to um, and I, I knew when he was purposely trying to make me uncomfortable, like he basically asked me, like made jokes about me working there probably three or four times in front of everyone. And I knew that it wasn't like, oh, you're a journalist. I'm going to like just treat you like a professional journalist. And it was more like, let me see what I can do to kind of push your buttons and put on this persona, which really was what it was, because even in the interview, he's smoking a cigar and blowing the smoke in my face and drinking champagne, which was actually not even champagne. And it's this whole persona like he didn't touch the cigar after the interview. He didn't touch the fake drink after the interview. When did you realize that you were moving maybe back and forth between a sales pitch and the real thing? The line, I think, was when I asked him his the first question I asked him. And immediately, it was about him being a child and having an erection. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I, that's not what I asked you about. The uh, first time you ever even came across your first working girl. Well, my first sexual encounter, uh, my first erection was when I was about nine years old. And I, and I realized that. This whole thing is just like, I don't think sensationalized is the word. It's just a little extra, you know, where like I anytime I would try to like kind of get through and ask like a harder question, it was either referred back like in detail about like sex, which is funny because I'm doing this documentary on the sex trade, but I'm not asking any questions about sex. Like, I'm good. Like, that's not what I was asking about this. I'm asking, I'm talking about the business aspect and the legal aspect. Um, So it always went back to that. Or it would always go back to, like, how his brothels are amazing. Nor was not charmed by Dennis, and it's easy to see why not. Here's a guy who describes his brothel as a family. I mean, he says he's their friend. He's their financial advisor. He's like their dad while also saying that, of course, he sleeps with the working girls. Oh, and as we're recording this episode, Dennis Hoff is currently under investigation for sexual assault. 
And Dennis is all about legalized sex work. He regularly brags about how above board his brothels are, how by the book. But what that means, it seems like, is that extra burdens are put on the working girls rather than on his business. For starters, prospective bunny ranch working girls have to first go to the local sheriff and essentially register as a prostitute. Every girl here has to go down and get a business license, be fingerprinted, photographed. They run the federal check on them to make sure there's no wants or warrants. And if you've even had as much as a marijuana ticket for $35 in your state, you can't work here for five years after conviction. Honestly, if this guy is the poster boy for legalized sex work, it makes you start to wonder, is this really the best way to do things? I mean, sure, like we said earlier, it is a safer setup with panic buttons and the STD testing and vetting clients. However, that doesn't guarantee safety and being treated with respect and dignity all the time. And also brothel owners and pimps like Dennis are the folks who really stand to profit the most from legalization, not sex workers. Well, yeah, because he's a businessman. And so legalization is what's going to make it he make it easier for him and it's going to make him money. Like he is very big on... Uh, I don't even want to quote some of the things that he said because it's, like, so gross. But, like, he believes that all sex workers are criminal unless they're doing it in a brothel. And, like, but with a lot more vulgar language and dirty things said. But um, that's his belief, and and which makes sense when you hear it come out of his mouth because he profits off of legalization. Yep, that's right. Regardless of whether people are selling sexual services by choice or coercion outside of legal brothels, Dennis dismisses them as unsympathetic criminals across the board. So it looks like this super-regulated legalization isn't a silver bullet for safer, better-functioning sex work in our country. It seems counterintuitive, but yeah. And here's where it gets more complicated— Folks like Dennis, who are all about legalized sex work, will usually claim that it's the antidote to forced sex trafficking. In fact, Noor thought that too, at first. But coming up next, Noor walks us through how her Sold in America reporting has totally changed her perspective. Stick around. We're back with the host of the podcast, Sold in America, Noor Tagori. Noor's journey reporting on sex work starts way back when she was just 14 years old. She was sitting on the couch one afternoon watching her favorite show. I watched Oprah religiously every single day, 4 p.m. sharp, from, like, as long as I can remember, honestly. In this particular episode, Oprah was interviewing the authors of Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women. They were discussing some of the grim realities of trafficking around the world, including here in the U.S. And watching it, Noor was crushed. I just remember crying and feeling so emotional hearing these stories because I could not imagine. And like when you know how sometimes people are just like, oh, my God, I can't imagine going through that. Like I literally could not wrap my mind around the experiences that we were hearing about and the ones that I read about later in the book. 
Noor basically vowed from that day forward that she would commit herself to learning about sex trafficking and do her best to stop it. And while you might think, oh, that's sweet, she was 14, y'all, she followed through on it. It's actually what got her into journalism. But if that was the first big realization that Noor had, then the second one came in the middle of her Sold in America reporting. She realized the issue of selling sex was broader and way more nuanced than her earlier focus on sex trafficking. When you're looking at the spectrum, on one end, exploitation does exist. That's the legal definition of sex trafficking. Exploitation that involves coercion, force, or fraud. Basically, forcing people into sex work, whether physically or with any other tactic. And... Then as you go across the spectrum and like in my brain, exploitation is all the way on the left. And then as you're going right, um, there is survival sex, which is considered sex work. But you're, but people who are doing it because they feel like they have no other choice. And then all the way at the very end is consensual sex work um, that people are choosing to do because this is what they want to do. And that's what you see happening in legal brothels in Nevada. Survival sex, sometimes called streetwalking, just FYI, is the most common form of sex work. Nora is really transparent throughout the Sold in America podcast about her evolving understanding of all this. And she and her reporting team use that to help meet the audience right where they are. What we're doing in our reporting is really clarifying the ex- like commercial sexual exploitation and what happens there and why, and covering the legal aspect of legalization, decriminalization, and why there are people who are engaging in survival sex and why that even exists right now. In other words, Noor wants Sold in America to cover the full sex trade spectrum, from the vulnerable child trafficked for sex to the self-employed working girls and escorts, and also to think about the solutions from all of those vantage points. And as she'll tell you, doing that means learning some important lessons, starting with the terminology. When I started filming, um... I thought I knew everything. And then, of course, all of that just like gets thrown in your face and you're like, LOL, just kidding. You don't know shit. (laughs) Like, for instance, I had a conversation with a sex worker um, and I referred to like her a client as a John because that's just the general term. And she was like, a John, you mean like my client? And I was like, oh, (laughs) I'm sorry. And it's not that John is like an inappropriate term or an offensive term per se. It's just like to people who are working in the sex trade, it's a business, and so they see them as clients. Another lesson? Letting people, especially sex workers, speak for themselves. I also didn't realize until doing this that we can't label people's experiences. They have to be able to say what it is for themselves. Because I also met with people who, according to, like, federal law definition, were being trafficked, but they don't identify as a trafficking survivor. They felt like it was their fault or they wanted, like, this was a situation that they put themselves in and they should have gotten themselves out. And granted, like, the federal government's definition would have defined their cases as trafficking, but it wasn't for me to say that. And that's something that Mm -hmm. was, like, really hard for me to grasp because I, I just didn't know how to take it. And it, and it, I was able to reflect on it myself because there are situations that maybe I've gone through or my friend has gone through or my sister or whoever, where now technically reflecting on it, that would have been considered sexual violence or sexual assault. And back then 
and maybe until, up until like going to therapy, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought about it that way. So it's like this whole thing where it's you really allowing people to tell their stories for themselves. And that's really what this was. Like any good journalist, Noor really listens and she takes feedback. After her documentary series came out on Newsy, she showed the project to a bunch of sex workers and took their suggestions of things to add and change in the podcast. And the reason Noor does this, she says, is because she can relate to being misrepresented, marginalized, and stereotyped. Like, I'm a Muslim woman who wears the hijab, and I am constantly misrepresented in the media. Every single one of my journalism professors was a white man, except for one woman who was Indian. Nora says that throughout journalism school, folks working in broadcast constantly discouraged her from pursuing on-camera reporting. They suggested her hijab would be a hindrance with gaining trust from sources. But Nora did not take that advice, which turned out to be the right call. It was interesting because almost every sex worker I talked to, we would have these like little sessions where we just understood each other because of that misrepresentation and they knew that because I knew what that was like I was never I wasn't going to do the same to them one of the sex workers actually wrote a piece for her blog on how she felt like she could relate to hijabis women who wear the hijab um, because society is always telling women how to dress and so like there was just like this uh, this foundation of understanding and I was so grateful for that because It allowed me to really make people feel comfortable um, and put them at ease. When you described walking into the brothel the first time and being kind of taken aback by, you know, the the decor and um, just the just the brothelness of it all um, as a journalist, sort of how do you reconcile um, your personal and spiritual sense of modesty in these very, like, immodest kinds of spaces, if that makes sense. Mm. So I think that's a question that a lot of people have asked me or people are just like, you know, what's funny? I was out, I was at an event a couple of days ago and somebody came up to me and was like, oh, my God, I watched Sold in America. Like, I just I got to ask. Were your parents OK with you doing this? And I was like, what? Yeah, of course they were. Like, why wouldn't they be? Nora says, in fact, her faith is what taught her not to judge other people in the first place. She's clear about having zero interest in playing morality police to anyone in the sex trade. Walking in there, spending a ton of time with sex workers was never anything that made me feel a type of way. And when people asked about, well, what about the morality around it? My only answer to them was just like, well, you know what's immoral? What's immoral is the fact that we don't have a safety net strong enough to house everybody. We don't ha- we don't provide services for people who need help. We we aren't helping these women put food on their table. Like what's immoral is the fact that people are going through so much that some people feel like they have to do this because they have no other choice. And to be honest, I can't get past that fact to even start thinking about anything regarding morality or revolving sex work. And this is actually another big thing that Nora learned along the way, that our country's lack of a safety net has a much bigger impact on folks engaging in survival sex than almost anything else. And when you talk to people who are doing sex work or engaging in survival sex, 
one of the immediate responses you'll get is, hi, we have a housing crisis in the United States and I need a place to, to stay. I need a place to live. I need a bed to sleep in. And a lot of people are engaging in sex work because of that. It's one of those things where people just are obsessed with making rules and regulations surrounding women's bodies. And so therefore, doing sex work is com- a completely different conversation um, because it makes people uncomfortable and because people feel like they have to say something about it. And we don't always consider the fact that an overwhelming majority of people who are engaging in this are doing it because they feel like they have no other choice. And to be honest with you, a lot of times our society doesn't really provide better choices for a lot of people who are in this world. Which brings us back to the question of how we can do better by sex workers with all of these regulations. When we come back, Nora will tell us what answers she picked up from the workers themselves who she talked to. Stick around. We're back with Nora Tagore, host of Sold in America. And we're exploring rules and regulations that have the potential to offer greater protection for sex workers in the U.S. Now, we already know that both legalization, like what you get in Nevada, and criminalization across the rest of the country leave a lot to be desired when it comes to creating what Caroline and I think of as a sex work positive culture. And there are a few models out there where well-intentioned governments have grappled with this. One is Sweden. In 1998, Sweden tried a semi-decriminalizing tactic. The Sex Purchase Act criminalized only the buying of sexual services, not the selling of it. And the idea is that if you could eliminate demand by targeting the clients, you could eventually end the sex trade altogether. This approach is now called the Nordic model, and it's been marketed as a feminist solution, albeit a problematic one. Yeah, that is some serious magical thinking. I mean, for one thing, like sex work and the demand are not going away anytime soon. For another, as researchers have seen in Sweden, that model doesn't improve safety for the actual sexual service providers or necessarily discourage outright sex trafficking. Plus, these criminalization models can also end up targeting just anyone who assists or aids sex workers in any kind of way, like security guards or owners of brothels, people who are actually trying to make the situation safer for them. And law enforcement often says that that's all in the name of combating sex trafficking. So we wanted to know what Noor heard from the actual sex workers themselves. When you're talking to sex workers... There's a huge push for decrim because, first of all, decrim would be the first step anyway. Ah, decrim. Or decriminalization, if you want to be technical about it. What's this new path forward, you say? Decriminalization simply means that removing all criminal penalties from engaging in sex work, both for people selling and people buying. So basically, we acknowledge that sex work is work. And decriminalization has worked. For a model, all we need to do is look to New Zealand. In 2003, after more than a decade of concerted campaigning by the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, the country totally decriminalized sex work and made room for brothels to operate as legit, transparent businesses. Catherine Healy is the force of nature behind the collective. 
She founded the nonprofit group in the 80s amid the AIDS crisis to help promote safe sex and workers' rights. And this summer, at age 62, Healy was recognized by Queen Elizabeth for her work. She made her a dame, a.k.a. a lady knight, for those of you who are not in the Commonwealth. (laughs) And that lady knight dame helped push through one heck of a reform bill. One of the requirements was that researchers would have to track the law's effects, and they found loads of benefits, y'all. Most of the sex workers in New Zealand finally felt they had rights after decriminalization. Like, they were still a little nervous about the police, but they knew they could go to them if they were threatened or sue brothels if mistreated. And more than 60% said they felt empowered and safe enough to reject certain clients. Today, taking a cue from New Zealand's success, Amnesty International, the UN, and the World Health Organization have all called for the full decriminalization of consensual sex work for both workers and clients. And even though decriminalization sounds like a silver bullet, nor and lots of experts note that how we implement decriminalization matters. It might not look the same in every city or country, Even San Francisco voted down a measure that would have decriminalized sex work there in 2008. And in countries where certain types of prostitution are legal, doing better by sex workers means trusting and empowering them to lead and create the resources they need. Like in India. There, basically indoor prostitution is legal. And since the 1990s, Indian sex workers have been organizing en masse. For instance, there's this one sex workers collective in India called the Unstoppable Women Committee that has 65,000 members and has set up things like schools for children of sex workers, banks for the sex workers. Uh, Some groups have even set up health clinics for them. And studies have shown that when sex workers are allowed to organize, there's a public health benefit too because condom use goes up and HIV transmission rates go down. It's really a win-win. So basically what we've seen in New Zealand and India is that trusting in sex workers, treating sex work as work, is not only sex work positive, but it also just benefits everyone involved, making the whole thing safer. Because of all of the social stigmas and the very underground nature of sex work and all of the legal rigmarole involved, it can be super complicated to truly, truly understand realistically what that spectrum of the sex trade looks like. But I think that really the most important thing to take away is the fact that it is a spectrum, that not all sex workers are victims either of circumstances or abuse or of trafficking, that there are plenty of sex workers out there who are doing it because this is the line of work that they enjoy, and we need to dignify that. But of course, too, there is a lot of exploitation that goes along as well. But like Noor said, this is more about social safety nets rather than morality, which is often what these kinds of debates devolve into. And I think that it's really telling when you look at New Zealand's incredibly (laughs) successful model that it came from the sex workers themselves. It came from over a decade of efforts on the part of that collective and women like Catherine Healy. And speaking of which listeners, we are going to be featuring an episode later this season where we will be doing just that. We're going to be looking at a whole different aspect and perspective of 
sex work, but this time we're going to be hearing from the workers themselves. So look forward to that, y'all. And in the meantime, Nor says if you're looking for a way to get involved, you can start by finding the point where your interests meet this issue. Nor recognizes that, you know, not everybody is going to feel comfortable taking to the streets. But if the safety of sex workers is something you care about, there are other ways to be a supportive ally. Whether it's working with um, a shelter or helping out your homeless community or looking up your, like, nearest trafficking, anti-trafficking organization or sex workers' rights organization, whatever, whatever aspect of this story pulls at your heartstrings, go reach out to that community and find out what you can do to be an ally and to serve them and help them um, because that's really what it comes down to. There are so many different factors in all of this. So figure out what you can do and what your part is because the fact of the matter is that people people need help and people need to be listened to and and we have the the best way to be an ally is to just talk to the people in that community and be like hey what can i do to help you can find links to Norris reporting on our website unladylike.co and sold in america episode 1 comes out tomorrow we're making it super easy for y'all to find by dropping it in our feed so you can check the feed out tomorrow and listen or subscribe now by searching for sold in america wherever you listen to podcasts also a huge huge thank y'all to all of you and ladies who have been reaching out about our book as you probably heard by now we published a book last week Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space is now out and available everywhere, both in print and audiobook form. And we've heard from so many of y'all congratulating us and ordering the book and showing us photos of you with the book. And it truly means the world. And if you're listening to this and haven't gotten your hands on a copy yet, you can go to unladylike.co slash book for more info. And remember, y'all, you can hear all the episodes of Unladylike without ads and get access to our amazing bonus episodes by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code unladylike to get a month of free listening. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlib. Special thanks to John Asante at Stitcher and the PRX Podcast Garage. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. Next week, is it any more challenging to do in heels? <laughs> I mean, a little bit, yeah, because you're squatting and balancing in heels. Most things, I mean, walking is challenging in heels, <laughs> not to mention changing a tire. I'm finally going to learn how to change a tire, y'all. <laughs> or at least I'm going to think about it. <laughs> and we're going to hear about some badass on ladies who've done it themselves. So make sure y'all subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. No, Dennis Hoff is not some rich regular at the Bunny Ranch. He's my husband. It's true. (laughs) Wait, he's mine too. (laughs) Oh, no. Stitcher.